my family was raised Christian. My children were raised Christian, and I'm the father, and I'm the one who told them about all this stuff. And so to come out and say, uh, yeah, oh, by the way, everything we've given our lives to for the last uh, 20 years, I don't believe that anymore. Um, so that is a difficult situation, and it actually took me quite some time before I was able to um, tell my children and my wife that I didn't believe that. So perhaps the best way to describe my guest this week is that he is the closest actual figure in academia who resembles a real-life version of Indiana Jones. And basically what he has done is when he was a young man, he went off with his family to the Amazon rainforest and took on learning a language that no other outsider, no other Westerner had ever been able to successfully learn. And he did it under the guise of um, being a Bible translator, actually. He was a, he was a missionary. But ultimately, um, he transitioned to become an anthropologist, a linguist, and in many respects, changed the way people think about language, particularly providing key evidence against certain aspects of the classic Noam Chomsky arguments. And so uh, he has incredible academic work, but it is deeply seated in going out there and doing what is honestly just fantastically amazing shit. And the way that I first uh, sort of really got into his work was he has the main book that details his time, his 30 years among the Pitaha people, is Don't Sleep, There Are Snakes. And it uh, has full of amazing stories. I highly recommend it just for, you know, hearing uh, one of these, you know, incredible travelogues, essentially, of, of going into the rainforest, trying to, uh, and you'll hear about this a little bit, but learn a language that no one else had ever mastered and, and having no uh, mediating language to do so. And so just trying to... Um, you know, make your way through the thicket of, of information and pointing and gesturing and, and labeling and, and all that sort of stuff. And that's what uh, my guest today, Dan Everett, did. Uh, and so that book, I would describe it as an epic of thick, thick description, which is a topic that we get into a little bit later on, this idea of what uh, and you know, sort of what an anthropologist is doing when she goes out into the field, tries to come back and tell other people about what she saw. And uh, Dan Everett's is just an incredible, incredible, incredible addition to that body of work. And um, so the another notable thing which we get into is that Dan was the subject of a book by the famous American author Tom Wolfe. And so Tom Wolfe, who... Um, one of his most famous works is The Right Stuff, which uh, is about um, pilots and astronauts. And uh, basically, he brought this fresh perspective uh, into journalism and nonfiction, which became known as the new journalism. And uh, so the last book that Tom Wolfe wrote right before he died was called The Kingdom of Speech. And it starts with uh, Darwin and, and history of evolution of, of how people thought about language goes through Noam Chomsky and ultimately culminates for the last few chapters in uh, Dan Everett's work. And so if you need any insight into just how tremendous of a figure this guy is, uh, th this hero of American 
literature and nonfiction and and novels, um, decided that what was worth his time the most uh, in the waning years of his life was to go call up Dan Everett and uh, look into his story. So he's a, a truly a, a phenomenally interesting individual. And his uh, another book that I really like of his, one that is less uh, densely packed with the stories and anecdotes and more just pure theory is his um, book on language, The Cultural Tool, which is his theory of language, how it works. And um, it, it really is an antidote to a lot of Chomskyan thinking which has been pervasive in linguistics for the last 70 years, however long Chomsky's been alive, 200 years, I don't know. And uh, and it, it really outlines a lot of interesting things and ideas about how language works. So if, if you're interested in that, I highly encourage you to tech, check out that book. And so at any rate, the last thing we talk about is that he um, is writing a biography on Charles Sanders Peirce who is an interesting figure in American intellectual life in that he is widely regarded by a lot of people to be one of the most uh, important American philosophers of all time, and yet he gets hardly any recognition in um, you know historical accounts. And so Dan is devoting himself right now to a couple projects around that. At any rate, I am really excited to bring you this interview. We get into a lot of different aspects of Dan's life, and I think you'll find it really interesting. So without any further ado, here is my interview with Dan Everett. So one thing that I saw about you is that um, I know you were sort of raised on Westerns. It's a, a genre that I also love. Maybe it's been a while, but do you have any, any favorites in uh, film or literature? Well, if you if you're talking about westerns, uh, yeah, sure, John Wayne and Clint Eastwood. Uh, uh, but um, in literature, my tastes are fairly eclectic. Um, I, I've read, uh, you know, I, I used to take Dostoevsky with me to the village in the Amazon and and read most of his work there, Tolstoy. But uh, these days, I'm going through all the work of American author Jim Harrison. Um, whose work I like very much. So I don't, I don't know Jim Harrison. Who is that? Jim Harrison uh, is mainly known for short stories, although he's written a lot of novels. And he's also written um, a lot about food. He was quite the gourmet. Uh, but he, um, he wrote a group of short stories called Legends of the Fall that was made into a movie starring Brad Pitt and Anthony Hopkins. Um, and he wrote a lot of Hollywood screenplays. Um, so he's one of the ones I like. I've also been reading a lot of Joan Didion and Susan Sontag recently. Yeah, nice. Yeah, I, I've heard of Legends of the Fall. Um, uh, so what, uh, and uh, I also just ordered, there's a, there's a new Sontag biography out, actually, that I think just won the Pulitzer Prize um, yeah. recently. So I'm looking forward to reading that. So what is it that you like about uh, the Jim Jim Harrison stuff, though? Is can you put your finger on it? Uh, yeah, he's. Um, I mean, if you like Ernest Hemingway, I, I actually like him in some respects more than Hemingway. He's a great poet. He's a great writer of his of his uh, outdoor life in Michigan, Upper Peninsula of Michigan, Montana, and Arizona. He had cabins and all those places. Um, I actually got interested in him through his food writing. He writes 
amazingly about food. He was very popular in France, in fact, much better known in France than in the U.S., and so he went there a lot, and when he was there, they took him out to all sorts of restaurants, and he wrote extremely interesting things about food and wine and its place in culture, and um, and then that led to uh, some of his poems and then uh, his his novels. He's written some brilliant novels. There's another sort of extracurricular that uh, I'm interested in. I know you grew up playing in rock bands. Do you still do you still yes. play? Yeah, I play every day. I've got uh, I'm I'm in my study with most of my books and uh, and five guitars. I can see why you're relatively happy uh, not to have to leave that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I um, I'm working on a new, uh, very large biography of the American philosopher Charles Sanders Peirce for Princeton uh, University Press and. Uh, so I basically read all day and take notes and prepare my thoughts to start writing in another few weeks. And uh, between to, uh, reading sessions to uh, reduce some of the tension, I always play the guitar. Um, so I, I have a ton of questions about your purse project. He's another person that I'm very interested in. And I can see why a um, sort of full-scale intellectual biography is merited because there's this very large disparity between, um, you know, how important he is as a philosopher and the sort of relatively minor role he occupies in the public consciousness of philosophers. Yes, that's that's a very good way of putting it. Um, if, if someone had told me even five years ago that I would be remotely interested in Peirce, much less interested enough to undertake a major biography, I would have thought that was very funny. Um, the, his view, the perspective, uh, perception of Peirce by many people in linguistics and cognitive science, certainly not all of them, but many, is that he was a crazy guy. You know, he wrote a lot of stuff and once in a while there were some brilliant things, but most of it is just utterly un unintelligible gibberish. But actually, that's quite false. He was a very clear writer, and and he wrote on just about every subject. He was, at his time, considered the greatest mathematician in the United States, and that was just one of many things he did. Um so uh, I guess I'm debating in my mind, do we hop into this now or do we do we come back to it later? Because there's obviously a ton of earlier stuff that I want to talk to you about. And I'm, I'm worried that if we get into the purse stuff now, we're never going to get out of it. So oh, no problem. Whatever you want to talk about. Let's. Um, uh, yeah, I want to. So I want to I want to ask you about some of your earlier experiences as an anthropologist. And um, so that started off. Uh, uh, you, you started off doing that as a Bible translator. And uh, you have a really phenomenal book on the sort of, uh, you know, broad strokes of, of how all this played out for you. But um, what I'm uh, called, Don't Sleep, There Are Snakes, uh, if I have that correct. And I love that book. Um, but so I, what I want to ask you about is in your late 20s, you successfully learned uh, the Pitahan language of the Amazonian tribe. And no white person had previously been able to do that, despite uh, numerous attempts. And so what I'm curious about is, when did it first occur to you, hey, I can do this? Was there any sort of aha moment for you? Well, it started 
when I did my first uh, linguistics class, uh, we, we were going to join, my wife and I and my two, my three children, we were going to join um, the missionary organization, the Summer Institute of Linguistics. And to do that, uh, I had a Bible degree. I had a, a bachelor's degree from the Moody Bible Institute in Bible and Theology. And um, we had to take a session of linguistics at the at the University of Oklahoma that was conducted by the Summer Institute of Linguistics. And in that session, they were going to see if we were good enough to be Bible translators um, and give us our initial training in linguistics. I had no idea what linguistics was. Um, but in the first couple of classes, it became very clear that I, I was, in fact, quite good at this. I, I was surprised at how people struggled with some of this stuff and how it just came to me. It just seemed so obvious. Um, and so um, we, I did really well at that, and I, I fell in love with linguistics. And when we got to Brazil to work with SIL, that was the con country we had been assigned to, they decided that they would try to get us to work with uh, the Pitaha. Um, the director of Brazil's SIL at that time, Summer Institute of Linguistics, was Steve Sheldon, and he is the one who had preceded us in the Pitaha. And although he could speak a bit of the language, he knew or he said to me that he really didn't understand how the grammar worked at all. And because I had done so well in linguistics, he wanted to know if I'd be willing to go there. And uh, we just said, yeah, sure. I mean, we didn't really care where we went. We just were there to do whatever uh, the missionary organization wanted us to do. Um, but it was extremely fortuitous in many ways, um, and it changed my life forever uh, when we decided to go there. And so I knew I was I knew I was pretty good at linguistics. But then suddenly, when you get off the airplane in the middle of nowhere with this group of people speaking to you a hundred miles an hour in a language that you can't understand at all. It's uh, intimidating and it's daunting. But within the first hour I was already putting together sentences and um, and and working very hard on a regular basis. Um, eventually I could speak the language and I was I was very pleased by that. I thought that probably still is the greatest accomplishment of my life is learning how to speak that language. Absolutely amazing. So, okay, so so you you knew Portuguese um, by virtue of, of being in Brazil. I didn't. Yeah, I knew it. I didn't know any Portuguese when I first went to the Pita High. I knew almost none. Okay. Uh, we just we just landed in Brazil, and I was I took off just a few days later to meet the Pinaha. So was and there an so, intermediate language uh, that you were able to sort of mediate through? No, none. No, it was just pointing and writing things down and imitating and trying to figure out what they were saying and uh, starting to make some sense of it all. Uh, and they were extremely patient and they had a blast watching me stumble and struggle. Um, so it was hard, but at the same time, it was extremely rewarding personally in developing relationships. I learned Portuguese after that first visit, and, you know, I feel as comfortable in Portuguese now as I do in English almost, although I've been out of Brazil for a couple of years. Uh, but I feel as comfortable giving a lecture or having a conversation in Portuguese as I do in English. 
Um, so overall progress on the Pitaha language was up and to the right. But were there any any moments where you're like, oh shit, I might not be able to do this? Oh yeah, I don't want to give the wrong impression that those th- you know. I used to feel like that almost every day, but then I would look at the little kids and these little Pitaha kids running around speaking the language fluently, and I said, gosh, if they can learn it, surely I must be able to learn it uh, as well. So they were an inspiration to me, those little Pitaha children. They just inspired me every day, and I wanted to be able to uh, talk. And the Pitaha didn't speak any other language, so I either spoke their language or there was no communication. So... um, that was the secret is inserting yourself into this new culture and language and being forced to depend on it. Um, there were times when I was in the village alone without my family and it can get extremely lonely if you have no one to talk to. And if you don't speak the language, you don't have anyone to talk to. So that was another motivation to learn the language. So that's, that's one thing that I'm interested in in the process of anthropology is that in order to go and understand this group of people who's vastly different than you are. There is a huge cost associated with that. And it's the cost of being surrounded by people who don't understand you, who may not even care that much about uh, uh, what you're interested in and uh, who you can't communicate with. And um, so, yeah, what is the, what is the sort of day to day of that look like? And how do you sort of reconcile the overall goal of like what I'm doing here is worthwhile with uh, the sort of the day-to-day of, of how difficult and taxing and demanding it can be? Well, for me, there was the first, there was the process of um, realizing that the religion that had motivated me there was um, was useless to them, uh, not of any interest, and it eventually became of no interest to me. So I became uh, focused on uh, linguistic anthropology and, f- and, and not on missionary work. Um, but you have to be first. First of all, you have to be clear of your goals. You have to know what what it is that you want to do there. You can't just be there, you know, just stumbling around all day. You've got to have objectives and you've got to follow them through. Um, and and that means uh, first and foremost developing relationships and learning to speak. I, I realized that everything that I wanted to do there depended on me learning to speak the language. So. You know, for the first six months, I did nothing but work on the language and learning uh, as much as I could about the culture and about the people. And after that, I turned to very specific goals. Uh, for example? Well, then the next goal is to figure out how the uh, grammar of the language works and uh, and figure out... Um, you know what do what do they believe in? Uh, what are the values that motivates them? How can we see these values and social roles and knowledge structures in the material culture that they're developing and have developed? Uh, so that meant, um, you know, going with them into the jungle on a regular basis uh, to help them clear fields. They didn't make many fields, but they made a couple of small ones to help them hunt, which I never was any help at all. I mean. I'm, I'm terrible at the things they're good at. Uh, so, but they were very patient, and they let me go with them and take notes and and ask questions and try to figure out what not only what they were doing but why they were doing it, and uh, how they explained it, um, what 
value it had in their culture. So just just a group of questions like that, because my goal wasn't just to answer a specific question about their culture, but to describe the as much of the culture as I could and as much of the language as I could. So I know that one of the um, big, uh, and it turns out controversial things that you brought back from your time in the Amazon was the claim that the Pitaha language and potentially the sort of cognitive processes of the, the group don't have recursion, which is this key, um, you know, sort of part of, of how people, based on sort of Chomsky and ideas, thought language worked. And so this turned out to, to be a pretty dramatic statement. Um, and so was there, while you were there in the, in the midst of it, was there a moment where, you, where that idea sort of dawned and you'd be like, hey, wow, they, we, they might actually be missing this, and that could explain all the stuff that I'm seeing. Was there a moment like that for you? There was. It actually was outside the village. But um, the, the recursion is a, the claim that all languages have recursion um, was made in an article, actually what Chomsky said uh, with his co-authors Mark Hauser and William uh, Tecumseh Fitch in a 2002 article in the journal Science, they said that recursion was the narrow faculty of language, that it was the one thing that was specific to language that was part of the human genome, that we constructed recursive, we, recu we, we constructed languages based on recursion. Now, they may have thought that that's also how people thought. But we have to be very careful to distinguish language from thought. Not everything that um, that we think we say. Our, our language does not exactly reflect our thought, um, even though there's certainly a, a lot of interaction between our language and our thought. So when I claim that Pitaha lacked recursion, and so I was at the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology in Leipzig, Germany. And it was about three in the morning. The nice thing about the Max Planck is that you live. I lived there, and so my office was just on another floor. So if, if you couldn't sleep, you get up and go down to your beautiful office and 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 think about things. I mean, I could have thought in my bedroom, but it was better to go to the office. Um, and I started thinking of all these things I wanted to explain in Peter Hahn, how they were different, their kinship, their number, um, and and. Uh, a, a number of other facts about the language, the lack of color terms. And I also thought, uh, actually, I had talked to Chomsky uh, in 1984 when I was a visiting scientist at MIT in his department. Um, I was My office was right across the hall from his, and we spoke uh, several times uh, during the year. Um, and I was, I hadn't come up, with the idea that they didn't have any recursion, but I knew they didn't seem to have any embedded clauses. And so I talked to Chomsky, and embedded clause would be something like John said that Bill was here. That Bill was here is embedded inside John said. And how is that different than recursion? Um, embedding is a... Um, recursion is a process that goes on and on, so you could just keep embedding. But... Um, you know, there are some languages that are known to have only one level of embedding. Uh, so you could say John said that Bill was here, but you couldn't say John said that Bill said that Peter was here. Um, 
there are languages like that, which is funny because those languages also don't have recursion. They have embedding. So embedding is like um, some evidence for recursion, but it's not recursion per se because it doesn't have to continue. Um, so anyway, I talked to Chomsky about this, and uh, this was before he had made any of the claims about recursion, and so we talked about it, and he said, I really, I wonder what the uh, implications would be for a language not having embedding. Well, that was 1984, so move ahead to 2002, he publishes this article. Uh, I didn't even know about the article yet, uh, to tell you the truth. This was 2004, and I had been doing work on other things, and I had been in the field a lot, and so I wrote this I wrote a draft of this article for Current Anthropology in which I claimed that Peter Hahn didn't have embedding. I didn't use the word recursion at the time in the manuscript. And it went to, I circulated it to some people in the uh, department I was in at Leipzig, and it just so happened that one of the people down the hall from me and my next-door neighbor in the apartment that I was living in in Leipzig was Tecumseh Fitch, who had co-authored this article with Chomsky. In fact, he was the lead article, the lead author on the article. And so we started talking, and I realized that what I wanted to say, although it contradicted Tecumseh's work, was they didn't have any recursion. Um, and so I looked for the evidence for that. I published the paper. It got uh, very well known. It gets cited a lot. Um, but then some people thought that I was claiming that the Pitaha couldn't think recursively. Um, and that's not the case. So I gave many examples um, of Pitaha texts that have stories inside of stories, uh, which is recursive thinking, but nothing in the sentences that shows recursion. So Chomsky had claimed not that people think recursively, but that language is built on recursion. So I gave an example of a language that's not built on recursion. Um, so somebody could say, you know, that's just an exception. Um, but the difference between a counterexample and an exception is a, is a really interesting cultural phenomenon. So if I say it's a counterexample, that means my theory is wrong. If I say it's an exception, that means we can set it aside and go on. So if somebody claims to you that um, all swans are white, and all the swans you see are white, and you travel abroad and you see only white swans, but then suddenly you come upon, in some other country, a black swan, well, not all swans are white. That's a counterexample. That's not an exception. Your, your statement that all swans are white is wrong. You can say most swans are white, then you're fine. Uh, so for Peter Ha, it was a counterexample because if one language can exist without recursion, then all languages could exist without recursion. So the idea that language is built on recursion, but there are languages that don't actually use it, doesn't make sense. And um, that's why the uh, reaction to my work, it's one of the reasons the reaction to my work was so negative by uh, Chomsky and uh, his colleagues. It's also the fact that people misunderstood my claim and thought I was making some claim that the Pitaha were inferior cognitively. And that was not part of the claim, and it's not even associated with the claim. Um, in a recent experiments by... Um, Evelina Federinko at MIT's Brain and Cognitive Science um, Department have shown that people can actually do mathematics when they're deprived of language. They can do a lot of higher level cognitive uh, functions even when their language network has been damaged and they're not able to communicate using language, uh, which shows, again, the independence of language and thought. 
Um, it's, it's just a mistake that many linguists and anthropologists have made to think that thought is somehow directly reflected in language. There is a strong connection, and in fact a lot of my work has been trying to show those connections, but it's not one-to-one. -one. It's not a necessary uh, one unit of culture equals one unit of language, and that's also a source of confusion among some. So uh, I want to maybe go into something a little bit more personal, which is, okay, so we know from sort of social science generally that religion is intimately tied up in our social affiliations, our communities, our relationships, all that sort of stuff. And you started off with as a you know missionary, as a Bible translator in the Amazon with your wife and kids. But as you mentioned, you eventually came to disbelieve the Bible which is not an especially attractive quality in a missionary um, <laughs> and also uh, puts you at odds with, you know, potentially the most important fundamental belief of, you know, the other members of your family. So can you say, uh, if you're willing, a little bit about what that, what that costs you? Yeah, sure. You know, when I, when I realized that um, I was no longer finding credible the claims of the Bible or about religion. Um, I mean, I had been raised until I was 17 as an atheist, then I became a Christian, um, fairly dramatic conversion experience. And then um, after some time talking to the Pitaha and Brazilian friends, um, the, the idea that everybody needed Jesus started to seem pretty ridiculous. But I couldn't tell everyone this right away because as you're absolutely right if you're making your living as a bible translator if you tell the people that are paying you which are churches and individuals in the u.s that you don't actually believe in the bible then they're not going to pay you anymore so your entire income depends on you believing something that you no longer believe so you you're faced with this quandary you know it's an ethical quandary what do i do and then also uh, my family was raised Christian. My children were raised Christian, and I'm the father, and I'm the one who told them about all this stuff. And so to come out and say, uh, yeah, oh, by the way, everything we've given our lives to for the last uh, 20 years, I don't believe that anymore. Um, so that is a difficult situation, and it actually took me quite some time before I was able to um, tell my children and my wife that I didn't believe this. My children had already sort of surmised this uh, based on my comments on a regular basis about church. <laughs> um, but um, but uh, it was shocking for my, my family at first. Uh, that was many years ago. Uh, it led to a divorce. Um, and so my former wife um, is now still living among the Pitaha, trying to convert them to Christianity. Um, my two daughters are Christians still, but they're very close to me and we correspond daily now. Um, and my son is, uh, as atheist as I am, and he's a professor of anthropology at the university of Miami in Florida. So, um, a lot of things came out of that decision. Most of the Christian friends I had don't speak to me anymore. In fact, none of them do. Um, and, um, um, you know, it led to, um, I, I left the missionary organization, obviously, and became a professor f um, at the University of Pittsburgh and then the University of Manchester in the UK. And then 
Illinois State University back in the U.S. and now Bentley University. What were the sort of parameters that you considered uh, in that moment where you were ready to tell your your family? Did something was there something that sort of bubbled up that you just couldn't contain anymore? Or well, there were a couple of things. The primary consideration was that I was feeling quite hypocritical to be around a religious talk all day and and act as though I or you know let people believe that I I shared their beliefs. Uh, so I had to say something about that. I needed to be honest with the people that I respected and cared for. Um, but it ca- it really took over. It it took um you know uh, twenty years for me to actually come out and say this. I I took the job at the University of Pittsburgh long before this, but I didn't tell people my beliefs. I was active in a church and I was teaching Bible classes. Uh, um, but eventually, uh, when we were living in England in, at the University of Manchester, um, and the Iraq war started, I was very opposed to that. And I started getting uh, emails from lots of Christians saying what a wonderful thing this was and how the American soldiers in Iraq are the, you know, the, the peacekeepers, the, the great um, angels of peace. And I said, well, I, I just can't. I can't do this anymore. So I, I announced to everybody fairly dramatically that I don't believe this stuff. I don't want to be associated with this kind of stuff. And, uh, um, you know, it was dramatic. It led to, uh, you know, my wife, it was just the two of us in Manchester, and she got up immediately and walked to the phone and called on my kids to tell them that their father was an atheist. Um, it was dramatic. Uh, but... Um, you know, the upshot is all these years later, I'm quite happy. And, and I suspect that my first wife is much happier, uh, being on her own down there. Uh, she tells me she is, um, and my children are quite happy. They, ha- they're independent. They have their own lives, their own families. And, um, uh, my belief patterns are of, uh, they just want to know that I'm, I'm still their dad and, and we still have a good relationships and, and we do. So these are traumatic things. Um, I actually wouldn't change anything in my life. I mean, I don't have any strong regrets. I, I did at each stage of my life what I thought was right. I now think that some of those steps were wrong, but I would have never known the Pitaha if I hadn't gone to be there as a missionary. I would have never had the wonderful countless experiences in the Amazon jungle that I had. Uh, so I have no regrets, and I'm very happy to be at the stage in life I am now, which with the uh, COVID virus may be the last, well, it will be the last stage with, with or without COVID. I mean, uh, we all have a last stage, but um, but uh, could be shorter uh, than I expected with COVID, but who knows? Yeah, that's a really that's a really powerful story. Thank you for sharing that. It um it definitely resonates with me a lot. I I had a sort of former life as a Christian, and the way that I've sort of come to conceptualize that is that uh, I, I I sort of say the the second best thing that ever happened to me was becoming a Christian, and the first best thing was deciding not to be a Christian. Um, because as you mentioned, there's so much about having gone through that and the things that I experienced and saw. It's a product of that, that I'm very thankful for uh, having had, but then I'm also very thankful for the ability to have moved on from them uh, and, and done something that uh, you know uh, works a lot better. Yeah, I feel the same way. It reminds me of a quote by George Harrison 
and they say, what, you know, what was the greatest thing in your life? He said, joining the Beatles. And what was the next greatest thing? Leaving the Beatles. Yeah. Um, so, uh, I mean, he was retired at 27. But um, so, so yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm really glad for all the experiences I had as a Christian. And I was, uh, you know, an ordained minister and I enjoyed preaching. Uh, uh, but I'm, uh, you know, I'm done with all that and happier now than ever before. And, uh, you know, it was, it, I'm sure it was the case with you. There was, uh, you know, really believed these things. So there was no hypocrisy. The hypocrisy only came for me when I stopped believing them and had to take a stand and be honest with people. I do think that there is uh, something very interesting here, which is just how inextricable one's religious beliefs, which we tend to think of as sort of this rational calculation almost, uh, how inextricable they are from our social obligations. So one of the things that allowed me to leave the church when I did was that I had a girlfriend who had just broken up with me, and uh, I'd never, uh, like basically the, the short of it is that um, I no longer had obligations to maintain my Christian beliefs based on the social relationships that I had. And there was a sort of breaking point for a number of reasons. Um, and it's interesting to see how sort of in contrast to your, your story, you had, uh, you had those obligations. You had them on a very uh, robust level, both at a monetary and a social uh, level. And uh, that had, uh, really didn't necessarily change your beliefs per se, because it, it seems like you were relatively clear about that for the most part. But it changed your relationship to them, for sure. Yes, it, it really was uh, life-changing. But um, then as, as I began to make new social connections, you know, I'm happily married to someone now who never went to church a day in her life, I don't think, maybe just to visit at some point. You know, when I first met my um, my father-in-law, he's he's uh, dead now, my, my second wife's dad, uh, he said, you don't still believe any of that religious crap, do you? And I said, <laughs> no, I don't. He said, good, because we weren't going to get along. Um, <laughs> so, so it was actually very refreshing to be in a totally new social uh, uh, situation where people did not depend on me to believe things that I didn't believe. And in fact, you could just be completely open, um, you know, about things. And my son and I have great conversations about this, but my, you know, my daughters are very understanding. I don't make any attempt to hide my unbelief, but I also don't make uh, fun of or insult or ridicule what they believe because they're very intelligent people and they believe in what they believe and though we don't share those beliefs um, it'd be fairly rude and arrogant of me to insist that they believe or, or abandon faith like I did. Okay so I want to change gears here a little bit. Um... So one of the last places you might expect to see the work of an eminent cognitive scientist uh, is in a Tom Wolfe book, <laughs> but nonetheless, uh, that happened to you in his enigmatic, uh, I think it's 2016, Kingdom of Speech. So what was what was that like? What what what, what, what yeah what 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 was that all about? Well, it's very interesting. Um, uh, Tom Wolfe. Um heard about me through the New Yorker article. Uh, there was a 27-page article and photo essay about my work in the New Yorker magazine um, back in 2007, I guess it was. And, um, 
and that got a lot of attention. Uh, and I was interviewed a lot on on you know American Public Radio and the BBC television and all sorts of things. Um, and suddenly I got this um, beautiful handwritten uh, letter from Tom Wolfe telling me that he admired me and he admired my work. And, you know, just out of the blue. Um, and uh, we eventually met and we, we had a really good time. I invited him to my university to give a talk and he refused payment. He wouldn't even let us pay his way up from New York. He paid all his own expenses, came up, gave a beautiful talk and went back. And then um, he wrote an endorsement for one of my books. And then he told me, he says, I hope that I can find time to write up a book that includes your stuff in it. And um, then he started calling me. And he, um, for about a period of about six months, Tom would call me at least uh, once a week um, and just talk for over an hour and ask me questions. He was like interviewing me constantly and he knew more about me than I did it seemed like he had read everything there was to read about me he had read all the articles criticizing me and um, the articles I had written and this was surprising for a um, a major novelist uh, some people considered him the greatest living American author um, and um, I asked him I said Tom why are you calling me why are you asking me all these questions and he said I'm writing a book I said well what's the book about he said well, largely about you, Dan. And I thought, this doesn't, I, I, don't, I, I don't actually believe this. Uh, <laughs> so, um, so then uh, he told me, he says, well, the book's finished. I sent it off to the publishers. And he never sent me any of it. He never let me see anything he was working on. And then Harper's Magazine in the U.S. wanted to make um, a section. They wanted to publish an excerpt of Tom's book, and, and it was the section about me. So the fact checker from Harvard, uh, Harper's called me up and started asking me all these details about my life. Is this true? And is this true? And I said, wow, I didn't realize Tom was writing that much about me, you know. But uh, um, then Harper's Magazine article came out and then the, his book came out. Um, and then, you know, not long after that, uh, unfortunately, uh, Tom died. And they had a memorial service for him in New York by invitation only. And his family insisted that I be invited to come to that. So my wife and I went down, and I'm sitting by Michael Bloomberg and um, and a lot of other people, the founder of Rolling Stone magazine, big-name editors and famous people from all over New York that um, admired Tom and his work. And his, his daughter, who's a writer with the Wall Street Journal, told me that... Um, uh, every time the family would get together, all Tom wanted to do was talk about you. You know, she said, so we all know all about you. Dad, that's all he wanted to talk about in the last months of his life. And his personal assistant came up to me in the line to enter the re the uh, memorial um, for Tom and, and introduced herself and said, Tom was a huge fan of yours, and I guess I am too now, uh, which is, you know... A, uh, given given my life background, that was all pretty uh, pretty amazing. But um, I thought Tom did a wonderful job in the book. It was criticized because he took on Chomsky, but Tom wrote a lot of books that he criticized people. You know, the uh, electric Kool-Aid acid test. Uh, he wrote, uh, you know, from Bar Bauhaus to Our House. He wrote all sorts of books that criticized modern art and all and modern literature. 
he called uh, Norman Mailer, um, John Updike, and one other author whose name I'm forgetting, The Three Stooges. Um, and he did this in print, criticizing these great American authors because he believed that a novelist that doesn't get out in the real world and do research is not really a novelist, that you have to get out and do the work. It, he was the founder of what was called the New Journalism. Um, and I was surprised at the, at the memorial service, it wasn't a funeral, that, um, that the founder of Rolling Stone magazine said that, you know, we, and the founder of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, um, said we, we could never have gotten Rolling Stone magazine off the ground if it hadn't been for Tom writing for us. And then the publisher of Esquire magazine stood up and spoke and said, we could have never gotten Esquire as successful as, as it was if Tom hadn't been writing for us. And, and uh, so it was, it was quite an honor to, um, to be there and to know that the last book that this marvelous author ever wrote was uh, almost half about me. That is a distinction not very many other academics uh, can, can share, is it now? No, uh, wow. they often get mad if I tell them about it, but, uh, <laughs> but it is, uh, it is almost a, a fairy tale. I mean, when Don't Sleep came out, um, a couple of years later, it was made into a play and it played in, in London, um, uh, for, uh, several weeks. Um, and I was, I was invited over, uh, to attend the play and it was also quite astounding to see all these gorgeous young actors uh, playing the roles of me and my family. Um, and uh, I went to dinner later with the actors and the producers, and they asked for my autograph, which was also pretty funny. Um, but it was, uh, you know, the, these are things that have happened as a result of decisions that I took one at a time back many decades ago. And, um, and I am very happy if people find... Um, any kind of inspiration in those stories. Um, and, and, you know, Tom Wolfe was just, um, I always admired him as an author. Um, and uh, so it was, it was wonderful to say that he was really a friend. Okay, so there's one other thing that I want to ask about briefly before we circle back to um, Charles Sanders' purse. And uh, it's that so I, I'm personally a huge fan of the anthropologist Clifford Geertz. Uh, I know you are uh, to some extent as well because you at least uh, mentioned him in the epigraph of uh, Don't Sleep. And I know, I know perhaps he wasn't much of a linguist, um, but I imagine he still exerted quite a bit of influence on you. So can you speak to maybe a little bit about what that is? Um, if you know, there's any relation of, of how you see your anthropological work to the, his notion of sort of thick description, anything in, in that realm that stands out to you? Yeah, um, there's several things I admired about Clifford Gertz. And um, the first and foremost thing is he's just an amazingly talented writer. Um, the best, really the, uh, he, he, amazing and absolutely incredible. Yeah, he, and that just stands out. You know, he, if you read what he writes, even if you don't agree with it, and I know many anthropologists don't agree with it, he is still a phenomenal writer. He is just a spectacular writer. But there's also the fact, so Gilbert Ryle, the, the British philosopher, is the one who came up with the concept of thick description. And yeah. Gertz took this over, and um, it really identified to me exactly what I was, what I was trying 
to do because I think a lot of the linguistic work that has been done on different groups around the world and the different anthropological studies, um, although good, there tend to be, they simply lack this depth in the sense of giving you enough information about what's occurring that you can actually come to your own conclusions. I mean, that really, to me, is what a thick description is all about. It's not, uh, you know, so you can, read an eth- you can read an ethnography or a grammar, and you can learn a lot about the language, but most of the time these are constructed in such a way that you have to take the writer's word for it. Um, because there's not enough detail there for you to come to your own conclusion. So a thick description means writing in a lot more detail. So um, that's what Gertz did. He just took individual incidents and he wrote them up with such rich detail and vividness that you felt like you were actually there and you had enough information, uh, or at least you thought you did, to come up to your own conclusions. Um, At the time, I was starting to get very interested in American pragmatism, I wasn't reading anything by Peirce. I was reading almost exclusively William James. And then I realized that uh, John Dewey, another pragmatist, had had an office on the same hall as Franz Boas for decades, and they were good friends, even though they didn't cite each other that much. But then I realized that Franz Boas, who was another hero of mine, was... um, was also a pragmatist, and he was concerned more in detailed descriptions than he was in theory. Um, so what what got me onto Gertz and to Boaz and to this line of thinking, which really irritates a lot of anthropologists, is that I think that before we can theorize effectively, we have to um, we have to describe things in very much detail so that we feel like, as we describe them, our understanding is deepened. Um, and then, when we feel like we have a good understanding, we can start to draw the pictures, the the points together, and and talk about how this might relate to another culture. And we can start to construct larger visions or theories of anthropology, which I also think are very important. And what what can you say? What what bothers other anthropologists about that position? Well, when you talk about Boaz, a lot of anthropologists think that, well, you know, he's he's this guy from another era, and he didn't believe in theorizing, and he just collected stories like people collect butterflies, and so there's really no science there. Um, although that's certainly, if you look at his influence through his students, like Krober and Sapir and Mead and um, uh, Ruth... Um, Benedict. Patterns of culture. Yeah, Ruth Benedict. Um, then you start to see the brilliance of his uh, of of his mentorship and the kinds of students that he attracted to him. So I found this w- wonderful, and I was very strongly influenced at the time by William James. Um, but other anthropologists much prefer um, uh, anthropologists who have theories of how culture work. Um, and... Uh, and uh, Leslie White, for example, or you know any number of anthropologists who have constructed fairly robust theories um, and are not known so much for their detailed descriptions, in my opinion. Um, but in, in any case, I, you know i've I've written my own book, Dark Matter of the Mind, in which I try to lay out my own theory of anthropology and how culture works and what culture should be considered as. and um, uh, so, 
you know, I have certainly gone on to theorize things myself, but I think that uh, Gertz is still an inspiration. Boaz is an inspiration. Uh, Sapir certainly is, and 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 many other people, modern anthropologists also. I I, I exchange uh, ideas with. Uh, uh, PhD students uh, in various parts of the world, and it's always exciting to um, to see what they're thinking. And and if they are doing something with my ideas, that's great. But even if they're not, it's really good to hear what smart people are thinking about things that I'm also interested in. Very interesting. Okay, so you have been a longtime student of pragmatism, and uh, more recently, you sort of have, um, which of course, the, the person who came up with the idea of pragmatism is Charles Sanders Peirce. Um, and to some extent, it was popularized by William James. Um, and he tried to give as much credit as possible to Peirce uh, to varying success. Um, but uh, yeah, so how did you... How did you be? What was the moment where you realized, oh, there's a whole gold mine of stuff with Peirce? Well, as I was reading on pragmatism, I was thinking of writing a book on called Jamesian Linguistics, in which I would write a theory of linguistics based on Jamesian principles. But as I began to um, read more about pragmatism, I realized I couldn't get away from Peirce. Um, there was a book by Cheryl Misak, who's just published a new biography of Frank Ramsey um, from the University of Toronto, talking about uh, Peirce and how Peirce was really the foundational person. And that was surprising to me because I, like many people, when they think of pragmatism, I thought primarily of William James. I thought Peirce gave the name, but it was James who developed it. And I, you know, after I started reading a lot of Peirce, I started to... Um, come to the conclusion that James basically made his living uh, misinterpreting Peirce. Um, and and I moved uh, strongly, I mean, I, I still admire William James a lot. And as I'm working on this biography, I've, I'm reading a lot of correspondence between Peirce and James. And James was a huge admirer of Peirce, and Peirce lived out the last um, 20 years of his life in in terrible poverty, and if it weren't for James, he would have starved to death. Um, so, um, but Peirce's work began to attract me, and um, at first it was just incredibly daunting, and so I started to think of it like starting all over with the Pitaha. I'm going into the middle of the jungle, all the Peirce literature, and I've got to learn it, and I've got to come up with a theory of Peirce and uh, and share this this theory with others um and and so the more time i've spent with purse um the more i have come to admire him as a scholar he had i mean there just was i, I can't think of anyone else like him in the history of of humanity um what is it you know Mozart, when you make that claim what what stands out um in particular uh about him like that the astounding depth of his contributions, cutting-edge contributions, to almost every field of science and to, um, to philosophy. So he was considered America's greatest mathematician during his life. He was uh, the founder of formal logic. He was a geophysicist uh, of world status class. He, he was looked 
up to all around the world for his work in geophysics. He was an astronomer. The only book he ever published was uh, technical mathematical um, explorations of the properties of light called photometric researches. Um, he he was um, he wrote plays not. That's not exactly where he's shown, but he was interested in lots and lots of stuff and his philosophy. And then he founded semiotics. He founded logic before Frege. He founded um, um, he founded phenomenology before Husserl. He was an amazing person who made all these contributions, and he had this incredibly difficult life. Um, in the latter half of his life, the first half of his life was very easy and quite well off. Um, and and uh, he, you know, he would he would, um, you know, comment on on Bertrand Russell and Alfred North Whitehead's uh, work in Principia Mathematica. Um, actually, they hadn't read it written it yet uh, during when he was well enough to read it, but their earlier work, and he was not impressed. Um, he didn't think Russell was much of a mathematician. He thought he was a hack as a mathematician. Um, this doesn't mean that Peirce is right, but these are just opinions that um, he actually, actually thought Euclid, of Euclid's geometry, wasn't a very good mathematician. So he had these strong opinions, but in a sense he followed him up because he was so great at the things that he did. And mathematicians today still write papers on Purse's math and his just his math writings alone are five volumes, uh, five big volumes on just mathematics. Um, so uh, these were some of the things. But the things that most attract me to Purse, the things that are that most overlap with my work, are uh, semiotics, the theory of signs and meaning, um, pragmatism, um, how we approach uh, learning and what the possibilities are of ever attaining truth. Uh, James sort of denied the existence of truth. Peirce never denied the existence of truth. He just said, we always make mistakes and we may never get to the truth, but we could um, if we worked together and we had plenty of time. Um, so, so he just attracted me in a number of ways. He, he decided he wanted to know about hieroglyphics, so he became one of the leading Egyptologists. Um, he has in his manuscripts discussions of his own of the grammar of Tagalog, and uh, he was just interested in everything, and, and he worked hard in the last couple of weeks of his life when he was dying of very painful intestinal cancer. He refused pain medication because he had a paper to finish, and he didn't want his brain clouded. Um, so he was an inspiring character. I think that uh, a movie could be made about his life, and it would be very exciting. So why, if he is um, such a great intellectual figure, why is he underappreciated today? Well, he was refused jobs. I mean, he, he had his only, his only academic job. He worked as a geophysicist for the U.S. Uh, Coastal Survey for over 30 years. But his only academic job was as a professor of uh, logic at the brand new uh, Johns Hopkins University in the United States um, in about in the in the 1870s and um, um, he was his wife had left him she was a very you know, from a prominent New England family and a well-known feminist and she left him and so he was uh, developing a relationship with a woman he was not yet married to his divorce wasn't final 
and in those days divorces were quite traumatic things um and he was seen coming from a hotel um with this woman that eventually became his wife juliet and they were married for over 30 years but um he was seen coming out of the hotel with her before they were married and he was fired from johns hopkins somebody um told the trustee at johns hopkins that did you know one of your professors is with women in hotels that he's not married to so um so he was fired and he never got another academic job so he did all of his work in his study in milford pennsylvania in the woods and he um he kept his work fairly well organized but when he died um his wife for a very small sum sold his papers to harvard university and they sent down a a buckboard and with a couple of horses a wagon down to get all of his papers and they got his papers in 1914 when he died and they took him back up to Harvard and just basically dumped them in a room. They were totally disorganized. The wind got them. Uh, faculty at Harvard took some of his papers and never brought them back. Some of them were taken for other things. So his papers were completely disorganized. And so nobody could read it. No, nobody could read his work. There were a couple of people who had read some of his things and knew he was brilliant. But it wasn't until... Um, uh, a couple, you know, almost two decades later that um, his papers were somewhat organized and a sample of them were published in eight volumes by Harvard, um, which I have sitting on my desk in front of me right now. Um, when people started reading through those papers, which are not, they're still quite imperfectly organized, they began to realize this was this was a genius of the first rank. This was unparalleled genius they were discovering in purse. Um, and there are other projects to publish his books. There have been, I mean, he didn't write books, but his papers as books. Uh, so more and more people are, are learning about purse. So there are probably uh, upwards of a thousand books written on purse now and more and more coming out but there's it's still not in the mainstream it's not mainstream philosophy linguistics ignored him very unfortunately i think the history of linguistics would have been much better if they had paid attention to purse um so it's it's a shock to me every time everything of his i read um it just seems decades ahead it's it's hard for me to realize that somebody who was born in the same year as purse was general george armstrong custer um, and when Peirce was at his first scientific meeting in France, he was the first American to present a paper at a major international science conference. It was during the time that uh, Custer was being killed at Little Bighorn. Um, and, and his other contemporaries, Mark Twain and Andrew Carnegie and, and J.D. Rockefeller and, and Renoir, you know, the, all the post-impressionists lived during the time of, of Peirce. So a lot of cool stuff happening in the 19th century, the late 19th century, early 20th century that Peirce was on the forefront of. He was a leader. He was recognized worldwide. But then um, he, he went into poverty, uh, which is a, was a form of disgrace back then. He had, um, he had, you know, nervous problems, physical problems. He was not very good socially. He made, he made some friends, uh, some wealthy friends, but um, um, you know, his luck was like when Andrew Carnegie started the Carnegie Foundation, Andrew Carnegie was still alive and well. 
uh, Peirce applied for a grant, and Andrew Carnegie wrote a letter of recommendation for Peirce. You would think that if Andrew Carnegie writes a letter of recommendation to the Carnegie Foundation, that would that would be all you need. But in fact, Peirce was still turned down because he was considered an immoral character because of this long-ago incident where he was seen coming out of a hotel um, with a woman who wasn't his wife. So this incident pretty much ruined his life. It's hard to imagine something like this happening today. I mentioned this to a friend of mine who's a professor in the UK, and he says, oh my God, I've come out of so many hotels with women who aren't my wife. But, um, um, you know, this is this is the 19th century Victorian uh, era. But, but one of the things I hope to do in this biography is to show Peirce as a person, as a as a thinker who was able to integrate all kinds of stuff um, in his head, very complicated stuff. He had an entire theory about how sciences should fit together. Um, and for example, he said that um, mathematics comes first and from it is derived logic. But that's exactly the opposite of the program that Bertrand Russell and Alfred North Whitehead wanted to develop in their uh, three-volume work, Principia Mathematica. They wanted to derive mathematics from logic, and it really, it's a failed program. It didn't work out, and Peirce would have been able to tell them that, because um, you don't derive math from logic. You derive logic from math, in his uh, in his view of uh, the world. Um, so, just so many, so many observations he did, and I'm finding that in terms of language and in culture, more and more anthropologists are starting to take semiotic approaches to culture. But unfortunately, from my perspective, a lot of the semiotics that are people use comes from uh, Ferdinand de Saussure, um, who was a bit later than Peirce, and um, developed a theory with the same name, but it was far simpler and much less empirically adequate than Peirce's theory. And then I've got one other question for you, just to wrap things up, uh, which is, I'm curious whether or not you have read uh, the book The Metaphysical Club, which deals with sort of the history of American pragmatism. Definitely William James and Charles Sanders Peirce make starring roles. And it was a popular book. I loved it a lot. Curious what you thought of it. So The Metaphysical, the metaphysical Club is a very entertaining book. Um, but as I go through all of the Peirce manuscripts, his correspondence and uh, discussions of the Metaphysical Club and his own records, um, I think that the Metaphysical Club um, is not a very nuanced um, a view of, of what was going on there. You know, For example, Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. Visited a couple of times, but he played a fairly minor role. In fact, in his own memoirs and a new biography of him, he denies knowing anything about the Metaphysical Club. Um, but it did exist. Uh, there's, and and Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., regardless of what he says, did go there. Um, but it's not quite the, um, it's not quite as it's described by Louis, Louis Menand. Although I I like that book a tremendous amount. And yes, I did read it as part of. I've got a I've got a. a Peirce um, uh, book collection of almost 500 books that I'm trying to work my way through, in, including all of, you know, just about everything Peirce wrote. Plus, I spend, um, well, I was spending before COVID, and Lord knows when I'll get back there. I was spending one to two days a week at Harvard Library, where all the per the Houghton Library of Harvard, where all the uh, Peirce papers, or the vast majority of Peirce papers, are located. And uh, then I was spending uh, time. In fact, just as the 
as as the lockdown started to hit the United States, I was in Indianapolis going through uh, purse files out there that they have and notes by a leading purse scholar who died, uh, Max Fish. And um, um, I just got back uh, in time to be locked down, so I have no idea when I'll get back. But I already have a huge amount of information. I can write... Um, I can write um, almost the entire biography if I never um, get out of the house again. That was my interview with Dan Everett. I hope you enjoyed. I certainly uh, got a huge amount of pleasure out of talking to him. And uh, one of the things that stands out to me is just how stark the contrast is between him and Noam Chomsky, which we get into a little bit, uh, but really in every conceivable way. And I mean, so not only do they have pretty dramatically different theories about what language is, how it works, um, you know, what what the core elements of it are, but another thing is um, there's this, so okay, so there's this picture that uh, you'll see it if you go to Dan Everett's website, but it is him totally submerged in a river in the Amazon with, you know, some Pitahan guy on a boat and and Dan is up to his neck in water and uh, this image really is to me a, a metaphor of the way Dan has approached the study of linguistics which is really to just immerse himself in it in the most dramatic way possible and you can contrast this with Noam Chomsky who is the classic ivory tower academic at least in the sense that he um, he he just sat there. That was that was that was the project of research that he was embarking on. Was he sat there and he did, you know, math stuffs and thinking stuffs and came up with you know monographs about what he what he was thinking about, and um, and obviously he came up with a lot of interesting stuff that way. But I think it's interesting to note that well, Dan Everett is the one who went out there learned this language that no one else uh, can learn and, and speaks quite a number of different languages. And Noam Chomsky didn't really have any foreign languages. And so there's just an interesting discrepancy to me here where you have these people with two totally different approaches. They'd say two totally different things about how language works, but only one of them really has to grapple with the realities of language. Um, and so that's one of the reasons that I'm drawn to uh, you know, approaches like people like uh, Dan Everett. Another thing is that... Um, you know, so Everett, when he went to study the Pitahan, and there was this whole thing about recursion, uh, where this was this key claim that Chomsky was making, which is essentially that recursion was the basis of, of what human language is. And Dan Everett comes back and says, look, I have evidence that there's this language over here that doesn't, um, uh, that doesn't have it. And one thing that's hilarious to me is to consider, imagine the tables are turned, and you have Noam Chomsky, who now has the, uh, you know, contrary evidence to whatever the foremost theory is at the time. What does Chomsky do with it? Chomsky would go to no length to advertise it and use it to eviscerate whoever, um, uh, you know, it was going against. And this is exactly what he did back if you study the history of when Chomsky came to prominence. A big portion of it was his critique against uh, B.F. Skinner's verbal behavior. And um, yeah, it just stands out to me that Dan Everett, um, maybe you could describe it as having him having a lot more humility and not 
quite being as invested as in being a publicist of his own work, though he certainly has has, has contributed to, um, you know, the the public's understanding of of, of his work and everything. But um, I think that's an interesting case study to contrast. I'm not sure what the, the takeaway points are. Maybe there's just different thresholds to everyone else. But um, certainly you have two very different approaches to what it means to be an academic, how to study one's particular topic of interest, and what to do with the different conclusion one, uh, one draws about them. And uh, so I really enjoyed this. Uh, I, I, I Again, uh, I love Dan Everett just because... It's just so incredible to see someone who so viscerally and emotionally and just all-encompassingly invested himself in his work and his study. And to me, that's very inspiring. And and I I, I think a, he's done it to a level that almost no one has has lived up to in terms of really p- literally putting his life on the line uh, and the life of his family on the line in, in a lot of cases in the Amazon. Uh, and in in many ways, just for the sake of knowledge, and I think that's very cool. And in my own, you know, modest sort of way, I would love to aspire to that sort of thing in my own in my own pursuits. But so anyway, uh, thank you very much for listening this week. That was my interview with Daniel Everett. Uh, you can find him on his website, and uh, keep an eye out for his upcoming purse book. And then. Uh, I am Cody Commerce, and I will see you back here next week for another episode of Cognitive Revolution. Mm-hmm.